Lord, we gather on a day in which many celebrate all kinds of things, and yet today we celebrate King Jesus, who conquered the grave, Lord, and through his resurrection has given us eternal hope. What I pray as we look at this amazing passage that you would give us understanding about how the hope in the resurrection impacts how we live today, God, that we have hope beyond the grave because Jesus conquered the grave. So Lord, would you give us attentive hearts this morning? Would you change us and transform us? Help us to, to look more and more like Jesus as we walk out of here today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jeff Bezos, the founder and former CEO of Amazon, is on a quest for eternal life. As he stepped down as CEO of Amazon, he is now a significant investor in Altos Labs, which is a, an age reversal for, uh, firm that is on its own spiritual quest for immortality. It's exploring how biotechnology can be used to make us younger and therefore live longer. Jeff Bezos' motivation for this new endeavor is, I quote, death is a problem that can be solved. Death is a problem that can be solved. In his farewell email to Amazon shareholders last summer before stepping down, uh, he wrote this, and he's, quote, and he's quoting uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a well-known atheist. He says, staving off death is a thing that you have to work at. If living things don't actively work to prevent it, they would eventually merge with their surroundings and cease to exist as autonomous beings. That is what happens when they die, end quote. It's been said before that death is the great equalizer. It is the one big thing that can finally make strangers shed a tear for one another. That death is humanity's common problem. That death for most is what a lot of us fear more than anything. It's the one thing that many try to avoid at all costs. Facing the reality of death is actually so unbearable for some that they try to drown it out with the noise and busyness of this world. And yet, despite the reality that death comes for us all, Jeff Bezos and many others are attempting to find a way to avoid death completely, to just live on and on and on. And maybe this morning you can relate to that on some level, that maybe you're not investing in Altos Lab, but I wonder if you're here this morning and you're living in such a way as trying to prolong your life here on the earth, not as a stewardship issue, uh, but you're being motivated out of a sense of fear, fear of growing older, fear of, of death. And so you've committed yourself to eating healthy and working out and yoga and avoiding tanning beds and avoiding chemically laced products and Botox, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Again, not out of a stewardship issue, but because you're motivated out of fear. I wonder if you can relate with Jeff Bezos. And yet, what we know in scripture is that the desire to live forever and ever is not necessarily a bad thing. The teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 said that God put eternity into the heart of man. And yet one thing I would tell Mr. Bezos, 
besides the fact uh, of how unbearable Amazon's callback time is for customer service, <laughs> I would look him in the eyes and I would tell him, you're exactly right. But you're right in a way that you don't know that you're right. That death is a problem that can be solved, but not by avoiding it, but by going through it with the resurrection hope of Jesus Christ. See, one thing this passage teaches us today, and really the big idea this morning, is that you will never know how to live for eternity unless you properly understand death. You will never have a, an eternally minded way of living today unless you properly understand death. That this passage actually provides for us a category for how to process death, how to understand death in a way that impacts how we live today in the present. First Corinthians 15, as we've been uh, looking at over the last several weeks, Paul has been laying forth an argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul has certainly been doing apologetics, but he's been very pastoral. He's been laying down the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus from this pastoral perspective. In verses one through four, he grounds it in the scriptures. In verses five through 11, he grounds it in evidence or eyewitnesses. And then verses 12 and on, he grounds it in logic. And what we've seen in chapter 15 is this emphasis on death. The word dead or death appears 14 different times in this passage alone. It's been a major emphasis. But as we get to our passage this morning in verses 35 through 58, Paul adds another emphasis. He, he emphasizes the body. The body, that word shows, shows up 10 different times in our passage alone. And of course, death and body are closely related, which I think is demonstrated in verse 35. If you look at it with me, there are these two questions that Paul is addressing, which is really one main question. The question that Paul is answering in this, in this passage is what kind of body will those who have died have when they are resurrected? As Paul answers this important question, he moves from proving his point about the resurrection to now pressing home his point about the resurrection. He is transitioning from apologetics and doctrine to why the resurrection matters and why it is essential. See, I think behind this question in verse 35, what the Corinthians are wondering is this. Hey, Paul, we, we know about death. We, we've seen death. We know what happens when a body stops breathing, but we have no idea about the resurrection. We, we have no idea how it's possible for someone who has died to be in the presence of God with that same body. That's their question, and that's what Paul is aiming to answer. Now, the way that he answers this question, he provides two explanations using two analogies. Here's the first one, verses 36 through 38. Paul uses an analogy of seeds. How can something that died be buried and come back to life? Paul says, you fool. He's basically saying, think about this. Think about it. It's all over the place in creation and in nature. Take seeds, for example, Paul says in verse 37, 38. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow 
Is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain? Paul's point here, using this seed analogy, is to stress that out of death, a new expression of life springs forth, but it does so in a transformed body or a different mode of existence. Okay, so in other words, God's purposes are not thwarted by death as with the seed, because what is sown in death is brought forth into life. Paul's emphasis here is on the continuity of life. Paul is stressing the the fact that a seed, though, dies, it resurrects to life, but in the form of something different and far better. Paul is stressing here that there are really two modes of existence, your mode before you die, and then after you die, when you are resurrected, you will have a transformed body, a transformed mode of existence, so it will be with us. Now, Paul's second explanation, though, using a different analogy, that of the bodies in verses 39 through 41, emphasizes something else in answering this question from verse 35. Paul now explains there are a great variety of bodies and plant life and the animal kingdom and water and then humans, but then he adds another category, talks about the heavenly body. I think the the great varieties of bodies that Paul lists here reveals that God is not restricted in what kind of body he can give to any creation, including us after we die and are resurrected. But notice here, Uh, With each kind of body comes varying degrees of glory or importance. And the apex is the heavenly body. Okay, Paul's point here, using this analogy, is that our bodies in the future will be incredibly better than the bodies that we have right now today. It's on a different level, a different degree of importance and glory. Okay? Now, What I find so interesting in this chapter is what Paul does here on out. After explaining the fact that we will have transformed and better bodies after the resurrection, Paul now lays forth a few implications of this. Remember, Paul's not arguing for doctrine or apologetics now. He's wanting to show why this matters, why this is is essential, And you can see this in verse 42, kind of the connecting verse. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's going to take what he has just said, and he's going to apply it into the present for us. He's going to start to connect the dots. There are three implications of what he has said throughout this entire chapter. Here's the first one, is that Jesus' resurrection assures our bodies will be transformed into glorified bodies. Okay, now in these verses here, Paul makes it clear that we cannot enter heaven with our current earthly bodies. Why is that? Well, in these verses, he argues that our bodies right now are lowly, they are weak, they are perishable, they are decaying, they are not suitable for heaven. So what will happen? Well, he says that Jesus will resurrect our bodies and he will transform our bodies into something glorious, honorable, spiritual, and powerful. He says, as we have followed the example of Adam, a man of dust who died, we will also follow the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, a man of heaven who died, but resurrected and took on a glorified body. 
Verse 49, we will bear the image of Jesus with these new bodies. Now, I'm sure you're wondering this morning, as am I, what will these bodies be like? Have you ever wondered, what will your body be like in the new heavens and the new earth? What age will you be? Will you be the young version or the more seasoned version? Will you recognize people in heaven? Will we be eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, wearing clothes? <laughs> will you be married? Will there be all kinds of activities in heaven that we do here on the earth? Right? Will you be in the prime of your life except a thousand times better and stronger and faster? Right? The, the questions go on and on and on, wondering, what will our bodies be like? Now, I'm going to tackle the topic of the new heavens and the new earth in two weeks. So I'm going to give a little bit here about what I think our bodies will be like um, and then save more in a couple of weeks. But here are four things that I think we can know about our transformed heavenly bodies. Okay, here's the first one I think is important to know is that the transformation process of our resurrection bodies will be instantaneous. Verses 51 through 52 says very clearly, we will be changed in a moment. It'll be the twinkling of an eye. So this won't be a long process or a long period of time like our sanctification. There's no purgatory. This will happen in a moment, in an instant. That's true for those who are living and those who have died and are awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. It will happen in a moment. But secondly, the resurrection bodies will be like our earthly bodies. So our mode of existence in heaven will not be like a ghost. You won't be like a blob. You won't be like Casper or, or even like angels with wings who's just playing a harp on the clouds, right? That's really bad theology. But our bodies will be very like the bodies that we have right now. You think about Jesus, post-resurrection, Luke 24, he's eating, which can I get an amen? We'll be eating in heaven, right? Hopefully that's a Taco Bell. Except better. I have another joke in my mind. I'll just save it. <laughs> oh, boy. This is what happens you take a week off from the pulpit. Um, also, I think we'll be able to recognize people. Luke 16, I think, alludes to this, this, uh, th this kind of parable that Jesus provides of the rich man and Lazarus. They recognize each other. We have uh, the same skin colors that we have on the earth we'll have in heaven, Revelation 5, Revelation 7. We'll be doing productive work that's untainted by sin. Think about that, implications for that. We could talk about that all day. But there are all kinds of things that we see in the scriptures about what our bodies will be like that are very similar to what our bodies are right now, just untainted by sin. I'll unpack that more in a couple of weeks. But number three here... <laughs> The resurrection bodies will be unlike our earthly bodies. Our current bodies are weak. They, are, they become sick. They wear out. They are tainted by sin. But according to verses 42 through 49, our heavenly bodies will be without the effect of sin. They will be imperishable, glorious, beautiful, and powerful. Think about that for a moment. You will be radiant. There will be no need for makeup, for cosmetics. You will not look in the mirror and think to yourself, 
man, I wish I had a different nose or different eye colors or, or, or a different set of ears or teeth or cheek. You, you will never think that. You will never try to be beautiful. You will be beautiful and radiant. It will also be powerful, it says, not superhuman, but full of strength. Will be spiritual, meaning to be dominated by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 65 describes uh, our condition in heaven as uh, being purged from weeping, no death, no unproductive work, no pain. Think about this for a moment. I mean, we, we can make a long list of things that won't be in heaven no chronic pain, no cancer, no viruses. No fatigue, no heart disease, no asthma, no poor eyesight or hearing loss, no temptations, no sin, no suffering, no arrogance, no discontentment, oh man, no jealousy, no coveting. You won't be looking at what someone else has and think to yourself, man, I want that. Be unbound by time. No mental lapses, no forgetting where your car keys are or where your cell phone is. There will be no piercing sting of regret. Man, just thinking about this and the implications of all of this can be summarized as in heaven there will be a complete reversal of all of the curses of sin. Like, imagine that. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Just think about how inescapable sin's impact is on our daily, almost moment-to-moment existence right now. I mean, we don't, we're like a fish that doesn't know it's wet, how often sin impacts us on a moment-to-moment basis, and yet we will be free from that. Like there's coming a day in which the sanctification process is done with, and we will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus, who is the prototype of our resurrection bodies. Love First John here. First John talks about, as his body is resurrected, so will be our bodies. It says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Can't wait for that. It's coming, coming soon. All right, here's number four. I think another um, uh, aspect of our resurrection bodies that I, I need to highlight this morning is that they will actually complete salvation because we will be glorified. I, I wanna remind us from a soteriological perspective, which is the doctrine of salvation, that salvation is more than just the moment of your justification. It's just the moment of, when you prayed that prayer, you came down the aisle, salvation involves all of God's sovereign acts, including our union with Christ, our regeneration, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, and our future glorification when we receive these heavenly resurrection bodies. Everything in our salvation is moving towards the apex of us becoming glorified. Philippians chapter three, verses 20 and 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are awaiting this. We're longing for this, longing for the day to fully experience our salvation where not only the power of sin is broken, but the presence of sin is broken as well. And so the resurrection of Jesus assures us that our resurrection bodies is coming. Now there's more here, more that Paul connects for us. Remember, he's driving this home. He's wanting this to be very practical, very helpful. So here's implication number two, is that Jesus' resurrection guarantees the death of death resulting in unshakable hope in the present. Man, verses, verses 54 through 57 scream victory. Like they are, they are hard to read, hard to, to just think about and, and to sit still. Like even as Dave was reading that, there's just something, if you're a believer, something within you that just wants to scream amen to the reality of those verses. And, and in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, this is a magnificent crescendo of Paul bringing his argument to a resounding conclusion. Paul begins to land the plane, if you will, in verse 50 by saying again that in order to enter the new heavens, you must have a transformed body. Okay, Again, he's providing absolute clarity to the question that was posed in verse 35. What kind of body will we have? a transformed body, one in which the perishable and the mortal are clothed with the imperishable and the immortal. And he says in verses 50 through 54, this will happen in a moment, the blink of an eye when the trumpet sounds, Christ returns. Question for the Apostle Paul, though, is how is this possible knowing the reality of death? How, how can this happen, Paul? Aren't you forgetting the great obstacle from us here to there is death. What do we do with death? And I think this is where this passage becomes really helpful and would be very helpful for Jeff Bezos in shaping a correct perspective on death. Because what we have seen so far in this chapter is this, that because of Jesus's victory over death in his resurrection, at the moment when he returns and our bodies are transformed, that is the moment that the abolition of death is final. That 2,000 years ago, at Jesus' resurrection, he inaugurated the death of death, but that will be fully consummated when he returns and our bodies are transformed. That when the mortal puts on the immortal, not only does death lose its victory? Death loses its sting. That God sw will swallow up death forever and it will be no more. Praise be to God. Now, what I think he's doing here, and this is so helpful for us on a practical level, I think that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the missing piece in the equation that produces real lasting, unshakable hope. Let me unpack that for a moment. I think in this life, we tend to experience two different categories that seem to, to contradict one another. That on this level, in this category, we experience sorrow 
and grief and mourning and lament. And yet over here, we can experience comfort. God's the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1. Peace. God is the God of peace, Isaiah 26. We can experience hope. God is the God of hope, Romans 15. But it feels like when we go through this life, there's this gap between these two categories, and it feels like we have to pick one. So often, it feels like we either cling to sorrow or we cling to hope. And yet, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does for us is not escapism, It's not just think about heaven and and sleepwalk through your life here on the earth. No, what I think the resurrection of Jesus Christ does for us, it enables us to experience both at the same time. To experience grief and sorrow, yet clinging to hope at the same time. To be a a hope-filled lamenter, if you will. To be one who is not suppressing pain, but is also one who's not being consumed by pain because you have real hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can experience both. This is how Paul, I think, unpacks it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be informed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, look, brothers and sisters, I know that you've had loved ones, people close to you who have died, and you're struggling with this. You're wondering how to process death as a Christian. Paul says, let me tell you how to process death as a Christian. Grieve, but grieve with hope. Do both. This isn't an either or. You don't have to pick one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ invites us into this space that feels like a paradox where you have grief and you have hope. And the way that we do that is we take our grief and we take the hope that Jesus provides and we rub it into our grief. We rub it deeply into our grief and our sorrow so that the result is a heart that laments, but without fear. It's a heart that that is sorrowful and yet doesn't despair. See, I think the hope of Jesus Christ provides a floor for our emotions, that the hope of Jesus is an anchor to our souls because the foundation of our hope is King Jesus who conquered the grave. So let me encourage you this morning that as as we're wrestling with the reality of death and pain and sorrow, yes, we lament the crushing weight of death. We, We look at death and we say, this is not how it should be, while also clinging to hope that Jesus provides and who teaches us that death is not how it will always be. See, hope eclipses our pain by reminding us that death does not have the final say. That in the bleakness of death, the gospel of Jesus Christ provides a brighter light. See, church, our hope is in the fact that this is not all there is. This is not our final home. This is not it. Because what Jesus has provided for us in his resurrection 
is that a thousand years from now and a hundred million years from now, we will be so caught up with Jesus and the glory of God. We will be in a place where there is no more death. There is no mourning. There is no lament. There is no brokenness. There is no sorrow. A place where King Jesus reigns and death does not. That's where we're headed. And that's our ultimate hope. And that's what enables us to, to think rightly and biblically about death. I love how C.S. Lewis describes our existence in the new heavens. He says, if we let God, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This is what we are in for, nothing less. Beautiful words. And the reason why this is true is because of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, in other words, as the great hymn writer George Herbert said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. We don't fear death because it's been defeated. Jesus has conquered the grave. Dr. Donald Barnhouse, who's one of America's great preachers in the 50s, he lost his wife in uh, their 30s to cancer. They had three small children, and they, they were driving home from her funeral, and they were just overcome with grief, and, and so he's trying to comfort his kids. And they pull up to a red light, and this enormous truck drives past them, and the shadow of that truck is cast upon them. And so he turns to his children, and he says, children, would you rather want to be hit by that truck or hit by the shadow of that truck? And the youngest said, well, just the shadow, daddy. And he looked them in the eyes, and he said, because Jesus Christ was hit with the truck of death on the cross of Calvary, your mother only had to go through the shadow of it. Look, Christian, this morning, you need to be reminded that the sting of death is sin, and all of that poison went into Jesus on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, so that for you, death is only a shadow. Death is only momentary. That because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, because he conquered the grave, death has no power over us. Because Jesus looked death in the eye and unflinching, he conquered our enemy once and for all. And what's amazing about Paul, Paul demonstrates the reality that he gets this. I mean, he is such, he's filled with such hope and confidence about this victory that he is taunting death here. In verse 54 and 55, he says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And the reason why Paul can say this is because Jesus took the sting of sin on the cross 2,000 years ago. He did take the place of sinners. He took 
our penalty, our penalty that we deserved that place on the cross, that horrible death. And not just the physical side of the death that makes it so horrible, but he, he absorbed the wrath of God, separation from God. That was supposed to be our punishment. And Jesus took it. He took all of it. And then he rose again three days later, showing his victory over sin, over the devil, and over death itself. And all who trust in Jesus, anyone who trusts in Jesus and turns from their sins can have eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins. And because this is true, all fear is done away with. All fear. I love this passage in Hebrews 2. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Look, what this is saying is that if your king is Jesus, if you have turned from your sins and believe in Jesus, you have good news today, amazing news today. The, the news that is yours today in Jesus, according to this passage, is that you have been delivered. You've been delivered from your sins. You've been delivered from condemnation. You've been delivered from guilt and from shame. And you have been delivered from the slavery of fear that's associated with death. That is yours. Think about how many people walk on a daily basis throughout the world fearing death. It can be all-consuming. And yet for the Christian, you have been freed from this fear of death, and this produces unshakable hope. Like Jeff Bezos was right, death is a problem that can be solved, not by avoiding death, but by going through it with the hope that Jesus provides. Look, there are, there are two different kinds of people in this world. There, there is a distinction among humanity that has nothing to do with socioeconomic status, has nothing to do with the color of your skin, has nothing to do with what gender you are. The basic distinction among humanity is hope. You are either filled with hope or you are filled with fear. Now, when you think about death, which one are you filled with? Hope or fear? When you think about being buried six feet under, in that wooden box, does that make you fearful or are you filled with hope? Is death for you an executioner or is death just a gardener? For the Christian, we are filled with hope. Lastly here, the last implication, I'll be brief with this one is that Jesus' resurrection empowers gritty perseverance. The last verse here, this is a verse that is exhortative. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
love what Paul does here as he closes this chapter. He closes it in a similar way that he began the chapter. If you look at verses one and two, he doesn't want us to believe in vain, but now in verse 58, he doesn't, he doesn't want us to labor in vain or to labor in a meaningless way or live without purpose. Look, notice Paul is connecting the dots for us about how our eschatology impacts how we live in the present because Jesus' resurrection empowers, enables, motivates, gritty, steadfast, immovable perseverance to do the work of the gospel. I love what Paul is saying here. This is so needed for us. Paul is saying here, look, I know life is hard. I know this is, this is tough, that you will be tempted to throw in the towel. And yet what Paul is saying here is it is all worth it. It's all worth it. Everything you go through, all of the suffering, all of the hardship, all of the resisting temptations and the pleasures of this world and dying to self, all of it is worth it because this life is not all there is. You were made for eternity. And I think this is Paul's way of encouraging us to not give up. Do not throw in the towel that you are serving a king who faced the greatest obstacle in the grave and did not give up but persevered. He was steadfast and he conquered the grave and he is returning. And if you persevere, he will utter those words over your life, well done, good and faithful servant. Do not give up. Do not throw in the towel. I'm like, I, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. I do know that life is hard enough that you will be tempted to say, I, I just can't do this anymore. And maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you're tempted to just throw in the towel spiritually and just say, this is too hard to live in the world and yet be a Christian. I, I'm done. Or maybe you're facing a temptation right now and you just want to give in. Or maybe you just, you, you want to just kind of go through the motions spiritually. You still want to be a Christian, but I'm just going to kind of go through the motions and get my salvation, but kind of live maybe like the people of this world. Or look, maybe, maybe you're tempted to give up in your marriage right now. Maybe you're tempted to give up on, on a child Maybe you're tempted to give up on a friend or a particular trial that you're in right now. It's just too hard to be faithful. Let me encourage you. Don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth it. What you will receive in the new heavens is worth persevering right now today. Or if I could put it this way, your belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is best demonstrated in your perseverance right now today. If I wanted to know if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I'm not gonna ask you. I'm gonna look at how well you persevere when it gets hard. I'm gonna look at what your steadfastness looks like in the face of a trial. Because those who hope is rooted in Jesus conquering death can go through anything. Romans 8 through 11, verse 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you to enable perseverance, steadfastness, to be immovable in the work of the Lord. Everything we do in this life has eternal significance. And what we believe about the future impacts how we live right now today. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise, oh Jesus, that you have conquered the grave. We thank you that you hold the keys of victory because of your resurrection and that you are coming back. God, would you give us faith to believe in that? Lord, not just to think about that every once in a while, but would you allow that truth to motivate and empower how we live every moment that you are returning And Lord, help us to live with a gritty perseverance that you might find us faithful. God, we thank you that we get to live in freedom from fear, freedom from shame, free from guilt because of Jesus. We thank you in his name I pray, amen.